welcome back to the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brading with Alice Duckett. Hi. And this is a very special episode. This Sunday is International Women's Day, so we thought there'd be no better week than to have an all-female splinter episode. We have so many cool women doing cool stuff around Sophos, so it's time to show a couple of them off. May I introduce you to Hilary Sanders? Hey there. And Michelle Forenzi. Hello. So I um, thought it'd be good for you to just give a bit of background um, about what you do and how you uh, how you got to where you are. So Hilary, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I have a background in statistics and economics, machine learning. I worked at a data as a data scientist at a startup for a few years in San Francisco. And I joined Sophos, I should know this, like three and a half mm -hmm. years ago, maybe. Who knows? Uh, and right now I work as a senior data scientist on the Sophos AI team where I develop deep learning models to detect and classify malware. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. So, um, Michelle? Yeah. Uh, so I work in the Security Operations Center in Vancouver, and I effectively handle the security internal to SOFA. So it's a cybersecurity company, and my team handles the security of our operations. No pressure there. No, none at all whatsoever. <laughs> it's totally fine. Uh, my, my background is mostly in uh, network security, and that's where I'm most comfortable, but I've also worked in compliance as well as uh, biometrics. So kind of a broad scope. I've touched more or less everything since I started in security a couple of years ago, and I've been with Sophos since January of this year. So you're very new to Sophos. Yes. Wow. Welcome. Also interesting how we all say Sophos and Sophos completely differently. <laughs> I think it comes down to the accent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> so Alice, do you want to uh, talk about what you do? Oh, okay. So you might already know me if you've listened to the Naked Security podcast, which I'm the producer of and have been uh, since January of last year. Uh, my background is digital marketing. Um and I guess since joining cybersecurity, I've become really interested in privacy particularly. Um, yeah, so that's my background. I've only been working in cybersecurity for a year now, but I think it's a very interesting industry. And maybe I should say what I do too. Um Many, so many listeners will be used to my voice, I hope, Naked Security listeners, but they might actually not know what I do. Um, so I began my career as a programmer um, and probably the most interesting project I worked on was actually bringing paid TV and internet access to poorer communities in Africa. Um, but I moved on and I've actually always loved uh, writing. So running Naked Security means I can combine technology and infosec with the writing and content. Um, and what I love about Naked Security is that we can, uh, that we are able to warn people about scams or zero days or anything, um, and help people protect themselves. So, um, yeah, that's me. Um, cool. I think the good thing about Naked Security and hopefully this podcast as well is that we can take some quite technical and maybe complex topics. And I'm hoping that's what Michelle and Hillary can do today and, and make them digestible and easy to understand. So Michelle, over to you. You're uh, new to Sophos, but you've got a lot of experience. So I was hoping that we could talk about how someone might get into the industry and particularly a woman. Uh, we get so many questions on social media from people trying to get jobs in infosec. As soon as we put up a Q&A, that's 
probably the number one question we get um, about how they would get into it and what skills they need. Um, So first of all, what would you say is the biggest hurdle for anyone trying to get into InfoSec? By far the biggest hurdle about trying to get into InfoSec is there's this perceived skills gap, which to be perfectly fair, there are plenty of jobs in information security where the employer just cannot afford to have someone that doesn't have experience that they have to spend time training on the basics. Mm. Um, For instance, what I do with the SOC, um, you know, I'm triaging alerts all day, and they can't just have somebody who's never done it before who does it. I know at least what normal network traffic looks like. I can start looking at endpoints. And these are skills that I've picked up in other jobs that didn't necessarily require experience. The sort of jobs that are great for that, that people tend to dismiss, especially hiring managers, it seems, are the kind of like network operations jobs, mm-hmm. uh, firewall administration, network administration. They're very procedure-based and they also have some element of troubleshooting to them. So you have a bunch of procedures you do every day. They're great to learn on. But when something goes wrong, you have other people who can help you solve the problem or, you know, you solve the problem yourself and you start seeing a much broader spectrum of what, you know, your network looks like, your environment looks like, and you can take that experience elsewhere. But because of the gap for skills that require experience in the first place, there's this idea that everybody has to have these skills for every job. Yeah, and I guess I suppose if you, if there's something you're particularly aiming towards, go for something where there is a is a gap, and then and then make your way into where well, you and eventually there are some want jobs to be. That you can start picking up experience for entirely on yeah. your own. A good one is pen testing. Okay, um, every pen tester I've ever known, they've been super interested in it on their own. Um, they may have taken some classes to help with certifications, but like they went after that information themselves, and it's something you really can teach yourself. There are great YouTube videos. There's a great community for it. And, you know, there's certifications that you can study for, get it on your own. And then you have the certification says, look, I can pass this um, and employers will be willing to give you a chance. Actually, that's a good uh, that's a good point is how helpful are certifications in general and, and even a degree qualifications? So unfortunately, we live in a society where you do really need to have a degree for almost any skilled work at this point. Uh, The good news is IT schooling tends to be fairly affordable. There are plenty of like online accredited programs that are kind of like buffet style, just take as many credits as you can. It's a flat rate. Um, You know, a lot of them have you pass certifications as part of the degree. So the schooling for it is unfortunately kind of necessary unless you've somehow picked up experience elsewhere. But certifications are a good way of showing that you have a certain amount of knowledge, even if you don't have the benefit of time for the experience. So it kind of gives you a little bit of a shortcut. Interesting. Okay. And um, so uh, how do people get in? How Are there any common paths that people follow? From what I've seen um, between myself, uh, my mother also works in information security and it was the same for her, uh, same for most of the people I've worked with. They either started in an IT support role or as a systems administrator type role. And, you know, these are considered actual entry level positions and they give you a pretty good feel for the industry. And I feel like hiring managers like seeing that you have this experience because they are Mm. kind of... um, the jobs are kind of a pain to do. So anybody who has the willingness to sit there and keep on doing it is usually a good fit for security type work because the work doesn't get any less stressful. <laughs> no, I can imagine. Um, are there any uh, skills, like common skills that someone uh, who wants to get into this kind of career could invest in? So the great thing about security is it's a massively broad field. Um, you know, if you're super into law and that kind of thing, compliance might be a great fit for you. And, you know, if you already have that interest and you want to build for privacy and manage the people, um, there are skills you can get there. But also for the more technical side of the spectrum, you know, the security analysts, engineers, pen testers, uh, malware reverse engineering, uh, if you enjoy programming, 
by all means, go ahead and learn a programming language. Go is very popular right now, but Python's a really mm-hmm. old standby. Hillary probably knows better which languages are most useful than I do. <laughs> um, but otherwise, nobody can go wrong with having a really solid, fundamental understanding of networking. Um, any incident you have, you're going to want to see what the hosts were doing, how they were communicating. You're probably going to find it on the network traffic before you have to start looking at endpoints. Um, and most places are willing to teach you how to like delve into Windows and Linux and really get into forensic analysis of the endpoint. So if you already have the network knowledge, it just makes it so much easier. So are there any underrepresented roles that um, companies are trying to fill that um, someone without existing experience could try and go for? Yeah. Now, a lot of the roles that companies are trying to fill are the ones where you do need experience. That being said, it's as I've said, it's such a broad field. Um, risk analyst work tends to be less technical, but gives you great exposure to existing security controls and what a good security environment should look like or does look like. Um, and these jobs can be anything from you know reviewing projects to uh, coming up with new policy. And so what advice would you give to someone starting their first infosec job in order to be more successful? So the first thing I would suggest, by and away, find yourself a mentor. If you aren't okay. comfortable at your company reaching out to someone, and the good thing about security, most people who work in security are really passionate about teaching other people. So there are probably going to be people who step up. But if you don't have that in the office or you're too anxious to ask for it, go ahead and look for your local ISACA chapter. Um, you know, this is security professionals all over. You meet a ton of people. They all have great advice. They work in extremely different roles. So it just it gives you a lot of exposure. And it's a small community. So everybody eventually knows everyone else. And if you ever need opportunities in the future, you know, that's that's your home base. Thanks, Michelle. So over to you, Hillary. So you work on the AI team here at Sophos. And I guess the biggest change in the way that we've been fighting malware over the le- last decade has to be machine learning. And you literally wrote the book. Just a bit of it. I co-authored it with uh, Joshua Sachs. He's chief scientist at Sovos. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> so there's definitely no one, no woman better to cut through the uh, hype for our listeners. So tell us why machine learning has become so important. Yeah. Well, in the past few decades, we've seen a couple really interesting things happen. So computing resources have gotten better. Um, the methodology surrounding machine learning and particularly deep learning, so deep neural networks, has really advanced pretty rapidly. Uh, and so what we've seen is that a lot of really complex tasks tasks that we used to see as sort of something only a human could do uh, can be done by machines that are trained on a ton of data. So specifically, I work in deep learning, so deep neural networks, and they're really, really good at doing these complex sort of almost human-like tasks if you give them a ton of data and you train on that data for a long time. Interesting. So is there is there stuff that it's machine learning or deep learning is particularly good at or as a counter to that, not so good at? Like what are, what are the pros and cons? Yeah, for sure. So one big con is that if you're data set is biased, uh, your model will be biased. Uh, if, if your data is bad, you will have a hard time getting a really, really good model. Uh, another con is that if you don't have a lot of data, it's going to be really hard to get a good model, right? If you have three CT scans of lung cancer, it's really hard to train a model how to detect lung cancer. But mm. if you so have... So how much data do you need, really? So really more is better. Uh, our mm-hmm. production machine le- learning models, we generally train on hundreds of millions of files. Oh, right. Wow. So quite a bit. Mm. 
And are we seeing the bad guys use machine learning yet? So I think a lot less than us. It's it's pretty hard to develop a program to write another program that compiles and is you know works the way you want it to work. Whereas right. it's much easier for us to uh, develop a program to look at two files and figure out which one is bad. So luckily, it's it's sort of easier for us to to do that task right now. Yeah, and I guess uh, well, all the time that there's a user involved, there's still people that are going to mess up and fall for phishing or fall for a, the f- fake CEO. So mm. maybe there's not the incentive <laughs> for, you, for them doing that right now. Yeah. Um, so perhaps you could uh, talk us through a cool project that you've worked on recently. Yeah, for sure. So one uh, very fun project I've been working on recently is on avoiding catastrophic forgetting in deep Ooh. neural networks. And so basically the idea is if you teach a neural network to do something really, really well, uh, and then afterwards you teach it to do another similar thing, it can learn how to do this new thing uh, really quickly and really well, but it tends to forget how to do the first thing. Ah. And So that can be a problem because it's quite expensive and takes a long time to train these models on hundreds of millions of files. But if we see a few new malware families or a few new samples uh, coming through our data pipelines, we'd like to update those models really, really fast and serve them to customers. Um, However, if, if you just update these models by training them a bit on your new data, it tends to make them forget how to classify older malware samples. So I've been testing out a bunch of different ways to avoid that forgetting effect in our production models. And what kind of different ways have you tried? Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot of different interesting methods. Uh, One method is sort of just like mixing in old data. So instead of just training on on new malware samples, you train on mostly new malware samples, but also also some old stuff. There's, There's also sort of more interesting regularization methodologies. So one thing that uh, people do and one thing that I've tried out is essentially you estimate which parameters are most important for your past tasks, so older malware, and then you penalize your model for moving those parameters when you're training on the new data. So mm. when you're training on the new data, maybe the, the model wants to update you know, all these weights in different directions, but you say, hey, uh, don't move these weights. I know that they're super important to my old stuff, so don't do it. And that ends up allowing you to sort of learn new tasks without forgetting things. Right. So okay. Interesting. And so, why is that? Um, why does security people care particularly about that? So, I think uh, for us, it's it's very important because it costs. It can cost thousands of dollars to train a model, um, oh, of and if you don't have multi GPU training in place, which is pretty tricky, um, <laughs> it can take <sighs> days to train a model, or even a week or two, depending on how much data you're training on and the complexity of the data that you're working with. So, if you can take these trained models and update them with new malware, you can end up uh, pushing out these new models to customers uh, to, to block new malware, you know, on the hour, on the day, instead of every month. Mm. Yeah. So with using machine learning to detect malware, are there any other areas of cybersecurity that you might use machine learning? Oh, yeah, loads. Um, so right now I'm mostly working on deep learning models to classify actual files, but I think there's a lot of potential 
potential work that can be done and is being done. Uh, so what works best in your, in your ex- experiments? So in my experiments, uh, honestly, when I've combined multiple methods, I've been able to avoid all forgetting, which has been really oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. So if I've combined sort of some data mixing, uh, so mixing in old data, which I I should actually use the the technical terms here, but I feel like they're a bit more confusing. Um, When I've combined Mm -hmm. that with uh, regularization techniques, so specifically uh, regularization based on that Fisher information matrix diagonal, uh, I've been able to avoid sort of all the all the catastrophic forgetting. So uh, what what's the future for machine learning? Uh, For machine learning. Scary stuff, pretty awesome stuff. <laughs> no pressure on this question, <laughs> Ups Hillary. and downs. I mean, I do think machine learning is going to just get bigger insofar as uh, software security is, is concerned. We've personally been able to develop models that identify malware with pretty stunning accuracy and, and does a better job, especially at really, really new malware, because deep learning models are able to perform this generalization. Um, they see a lot of new data and can generalize to new samples, whereas historically we've sort of used uh, things like signatures, which use pretty strict strict patterns and strict filters that we that we write on our own. So I, I do think we're going to be seeing more and more use of deep learning models to detect malicious content, malicious files, etc. Interesting. Cool. Thank you, Hillary. Yeah, for sure. On to some general industry topics then. We thought it might be interesting to get your views on a few divisive subjects. So first of all, we talk a lot about facial recognition or naked security. There are good things it can be used for, but also obviously a lot of bad. Um, Only last podcast episode, Alice talked about the Clearview AI, Mm -hmm. which has amassed tons of face prints scraped from social networks. And it sold the data onto law enforcement to to Alice's horror (laughs) and actually everybody's. (laughs) So what do you, what are you, your thoughts on facial recognition? Uh, I guess I'll start if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Michelle here, I actually used to work for a biometrics company and I remember so many times sitting around and people would be talking about this technology and it sounds like science fiction. I go, wow, that's really cool. And they go, oh no, we've already developed it. It's out in all these places. And I'm sitting there going, <gasps> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> um, oh no. And most facial recognition, like you'll hear about it a lot for governments, but most of it is actually in the private sector because the private sector is who has money. Mm. Um, the big thing right now are these facial recognition arches. Um, they have them, I think they're trying to put them in like airports and stuff mostly and borders and what have you, but they're, they're really meant for, and they're marketed for like concert venues and stadiums uh, for right. sporting events. And the way they're built is kind of like, you know, you have somebody who's these arches can recognize dozens of faces every second with pretty good accuracy. So one of the things that they'll try to sell it with is like, hey, if there's a lost kid, um, you know, there are all these arches, we can probably very quickly find this kid and get them reunited with their parents. Uh, or they want to start tying like the, the ability to purchase food and alcohol to your identity. So, you know, you've already got an app. It knows you're 21. It's got your face. It's got your fingerprint. You show up at the concession stand. You say, hey, I want this. The credit, your credit card's on the app. They, they know you're 21. They give you your drink. You go. And then they and follow you around with adverts for the rest of your life. Yeah, I'm sure. But, you know, like we have this technology and it's terrifying, Mm -hmm. but most of it's been built for the private sector, even though the government, of course, will eventually pick up. How did they build them? Because with the Clearview case, uh, the images were scraped from social media and then uploaded into a database. Where do these kind of places get that amount of people's facial pictures from? 
So there are a lot of places where you don't necessarily realize you're giving up your image. Mm -hmm. Um, Anybody who's traveled internationally, I'm sure, you know, you you go and you scan your passport and it gets a picture of you. Mm -hmm. Um, So like airports and borders that are do that are doing this theoretically i'm assuming that's where they're getting their images from uh they say they're not saving it but they're taking your picture it's going somewhere it's being used for something people don't just collect data to collect data there's money and profit to be made Mm, yeah Yeah. Um, in these in the the private setting usually it's connected to an app so you've already taken a picture for the app my concern is that right with facial recognition technology it's super good. It will only get better. We really can't put this technology back in the genie bottle. Uh, and there's so many really good uses, like finding children, like finding really scary criminals. Mm. But once you have a big database of faces, it's a super slippery slope to begin using it in really, really bad ways. And I think it's like, especially with governments, it's hard to scale that back once they're mm. using it in a pretty malicious way or in, or in ways that violate civil liberties. So to me, uh, it's concerning when these sort of uh, facial recognition to- technologies are being utilized, even in pretty benign ways, because it's such a short hop once they have the data to be to use it in malicious ways, whereas it's a longer hop to get all that data and put it in a database and make it ready for use. Well, and I mm. think... Uh- Hillary, you probably know it as well from the from the machine learning and neural networks. Uh, part of the pitfalls of biometric data, facial recognition, fingerprints, is it's not looking for a 100% match because it's going to be almost impossible. Maybe you have sweat on your finger. Uh, maybe you get like a little tiny scar. So it's not looking to match 100%. It's looking to nearly match within a certain parameter. Oh, of course. It's always a probability. And that probability is based on your training data, which often can be racist and biased. Mm. Oh. With this, with the Clearview case again, they were able to match people's addresses and obviously their social media because that's where they'd got the images from. But in these cases, if they are taking it from like an airport, for example, and they just have that picture of you and then the new picture of you they're trying to match, do they realistically then have all of your um, personal details to attach to that or not? Well, I think the scariest thing with the airport, because it's happened before, and this was years ago, so I'm hoping the processes have changed since then. Uh, But once I was traveling just within the US and I like got up to security and didn't have my driver's license. And I don't remember exactly what happened, but I didn't have ID with me. And so I got pulled aside into a separate queue and I was asked questions like, um, name the street you lived on in this year. Mm. Uh, and like, they were, they were security questions. It was like the in-person test for being asked security questions for your password. And I answered those successfully. So they assumed I was me and let me go. But it wasn't anything that you'd set up with them no, or anything right. it was, oh it was, my god and it was all publicly available information like this is the kind of thing you'd find on a census yeah. or when my parents registered me for elementary school so i Gosh. i know that at least in the united states trump over the past few years has been pushing uh taking pictures of people at airports for identification purposes mm. and if you're a u.s citizen uh i I don't know much about this, so I might be wrong, but I think if you're a U.S. citizen, they delete the photo pretty quickly. But if you're not a U.S. citizen, uh, they don't do that. I have so much difficulty believing in the hygiene of something like that, just because if we talk about, you know, you're working for a company, uh, people who leave, you're supposed to take their access away after their last day. How often that does not happen. Mm. Yeah, I, like I struggle to believe that the data is only actually being saved for a certain amount of time. There's money for somebody if it is saved beyond then. Yeah. And, you know, America's a capitalist nation. Yeah. And if it's so profitable for them to keep the images, then sometimes it may be like, especially for these private companies, they just pay the fine when they're sued. And actually, they were able to make more profit by using that stuff mm. they said they weren't. So it's better for them to just actually. Do it. 
fun, fun story, uh, because I've worked in compliance before and I've worked as an engineer being audited for compliance. Uh, there are plenty of companies where the fines for compliance are so low that it is cheaper for them to just keep paying the fine all the time than to actually fix the problem. Mm. Doesn't surprise me. Mm. That is a lot. And we're talking, this is usually related to like PCI and HIPAA. So we're talking credit card and medical data. Mm. Exactly. it's, It's one of those things I not at Sophos because it's not set up this way, but in previous jobs, when I've done like security analytics work, you have access to read all emails sent into the company. Yeah. Um, like, you know, I don't have the time to just sit there and read everybody's emails, but I can't tell you. Like, I've discovered extramarital affairs and <clears throat> nasty divorces. And it's like, you know, I open up this email because I got an alert that it looks suspicious. I start oh, reading the no. email. I'm like, wow, I can't look at this person the same again. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> but that's the thing. That's the thing. You get, and, and you, you could get particularly interested in one person and then you could look up or if you had access to their emails, you could read their email. Well, like people, people are mostly good, right? Uh, yeah. Individuals could stalk you. They could kill you all the time. And yet we don't. It's so rare. It's amazing. But <laughs> so That's like true. that concerns me a little bit less because most people are really good. So if a few people have access, that is a danger. But it's 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 not like something that's going to affect all of society. Well, and I think part of it, in my experience, and I might have just been lucky, but I think this is true of the industry. Most security professionals have the utmost integrity. Like our integrity yeah. is our reputation. Mm. You You can't work in security if you don't have integrity. And so I don't think it's necessarily the people who immediately have access, but it might be the people adjacent to them right. where I would I would think there might be a problem just because, you know, everybody that I've run into is extremely concerned, like like we are, about privacy and how is this technology being used? Mm. But we're also in a slightly different end of the spectrum than most of the public. Right. And everyone knows they have access. So, you know, they don't have much deniability. Mm, no. Yeah. And we all which, know everything is, is being logged. But but you're right. If that data sneaks out, then it becomes more dangerous. But bringing it back to facial recognition in particular, do you think it's just too late? Like, have, have we sort of worrying about it now and it's all it's all just too late? Or can, is there something that can, can we can we save it somehow? I suppose it depends what you mean. It's too late to take back the technology. That's that's done and gone. It's only going to get better. But it's not too late to start implementing laws that reduce companies and governments' uh, abilities to to use this data. That's really important right now because it's a slippery slope and it's hard to it's harder to remove you know government ability to to track citizens than to give it. Yeah, I, I agree with Hillary. You, you can't put this technology back in the box. And law, of mm. course, is very important. But I think something else we should be investing in, especially because we are now such a digital and connected world, is having education about this in like public schools. You know, as kids grow up, they learn that this technology exists and they learn how to safeguard themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my generation is the, is the first generation to grow up with the Internet. And at least Americans, uh, millennial Americans, they never had this idea that they have a right to privacy. Everything is just online. Uh, so I think, you know, aside from laws for the adults, but for the for the next next people in society, just start giving them education. Mm. I think that would do a lot. And I think, as you say, the first generation to grow up with like the internet and social media back in the day with Facebook, when you used to upload thousands of pictures of yourself all the time, I think now we've kind of reined it in and people do post less of themselves on social media. And that might just be Mm. part of the education that you don't want loads and loads of pictures of your face out there because they can be used. 
Well, and it's not just that. I mean, I haven't updated any of my social media that I work for Sawfest yet, just because I've been, I've been hit a couple of times with attempts to socially engineer, and people use so- social media for phishing to try to catch you out. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, crap. How do I update this safely? And part <laughs> yeah. of it is like me looking at it, going, "This is such a headache that I'll deal with it later." I always find LinkedIn really interesting because we do upload basically our entire CV onto LinkedIn, and I've done it. But I always think that is probably the one that you put the most information on very freely yeah well and especially for um pen testers we talk about network pen testing all the time but there's physical pen testing you know can you actually get into a building and my Mm. friends who are pen testers the way they do their research is they hit up linkedin and so and social media facebook instagram you know they learn names they learn what the uniforms look like and of course these are the good guys trying to figure out how to trick people into letting them in but if the good guy can do it, it means the bad guys have been doing it for ages. Definitely. Exactly. Yeah. The good guy's job is to try to imitate the bad guy. Mm. What are your thoughts on healthcare in general, healthcare data, device safety, that sort of thing? When I think of healthcare and like machine learning and big data, uh, I am concerned about privacy, but it also makes me think, wow, we could be saving so many lives if we utilize the data that we have to detect diseases and, you know, give people the treatment that they need years ahead of time. Uh, It's, there's so much potential there and there's a lot of blockers to it. Privacy is one, but bigger stuff is, is just like the data is locked up in all these different databases that are hard to combine. Um, Mm. But that's honestly the first thing that I think of because there is so much potential there. So what give it, have you got any examples of, of good potential? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, if you just think about like CT scans, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, you can design a machine learning model to detect cancer in a CT scan at a level of accuracy that's that's better than humans. And what's interesting is that uh, instead of just training on, hey, here's like a scan or here's here's like a patient with all their history. This is what a doctor said. Instead of just training on that and trying to imitate what a doctor said, which works very well and you can end up doing better than the average doctor if you train on data like that. We potentially have access to data over the long term. Like here was the scan. Was this actually cancer five years later? Did they actually die 10 years later or Mm. were they okay? And so we potentially have access to data that's even better than what an expert human uh, says right now. And so that gives us the potential to really design machine learning uh, algorithms that could truly save a lot of lives uh that's that's what that's what i think but it's it's a long way off yeah and i think on the privacy end of the spectrum a lot of the difficulty we have in healthcare, um, part of it is doctor's offices. They outsource their IT. Uh, your security is only as good as whoever's handling it. And, so, and me- medical professionals, they are too busy to think of this. They hire it out to somebody else, um, which theoretically should be a good way to do it. But historically, especially in the States, your medical data is extremely insecure. Mm. Um, and then if we move on to like hospitals and this whole internet of things, because there, there are so many devices in a hospital that talk to the network, but they're not traditional computers. And a lot of these things weren't coded with security in mind. I no. mean, the idea of secure software coding is still fairly new. I mean, it's the, the concept has been around for a long time, but actually doing it in practice as a standard is still not 100%. So you have these devices that by design are insecure, and now you're having to go back and try to secure them. And as anybody who's worked on a project knows, it's going to be a lot easier if you call your security person in the, like at the first meeting and not two months before it's due. 
Yeah. It's a lot harder to put the ingredients in when it's half baked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, speaking of things that weren't necessarily coded securely in mind, and of course, I don't actually know the technology, so I, you know, it could be one way or the other. But I saw a commercial recently for the diabetes monitor, like you wear it on your arm, you tap your smartphone to it, it does the reading. That seems like there are so many potential places for a breach with this kind of technology, where a lot of it seems like it's probably proximity based. But it's just the fact that you're putting it on your phone for one, it's communicating theoretically with something else. It's probably storing the data so you can track patterns. I mean, that for me, that seems like it would be a huge risk, a yeah. huge convenience, but also huge risk. Yeah. Also, what happens if you lose your phone or your screen smashes? Um, you know, I don't know. It feels a bit. I would find it hard to believe. Yeah, well, I find it hard to believe that they're storing the data locally, which means that somebody else has that data. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, though, it you do raise a good point. Like, to me, if your phone breaks and suddenly you're not able to figure out uh, what your blood sugar is, that's that's kind of scarier because that mm. could really impact lives than, oh, someone knows what your blood sugar has been the last six months. Um, that data should be private, but maybe I'm not creative enough, but I don't see a ton of like ways that people could really, really like impact your life if they know that. But I guess it goes simply back to what you were Mm. saying earlier about phishing scams, just by knowing where you work and Mm. just little things like that. They could just be like uh, urgent from your, from your medical provider, your blood sugar's low, click here. They're just simple things like that actually could be. That's true. That's, that's super true. You're right. Mm. But of course, and this also, but this still gives us that really great data, like Hillary's talking about, where we can have historical data to start to start teaching these symptom uh, systems, mm-hmm. so that they do it better than humans can. Yeah, I'm just as a data scientist, I'm always so data greedy. Don't trust mm. me. Yeah, that's okay. I feel the same way with Splunk. Like, give me access to your Splunk environment, I, I, and I will be a happy person. For I love it too much. I just want the data. I will live in Splunk. <laughs> cool. Okay. So um, lastly, we thought we can't really have a podcast without talking about social media um so do you use it are you worried about what they're doing with your information all your uh, college party pics what's your approach to social media well, i mean my approach i'm in a weird position because as far as i know nobody else on the planet has my name so i don't even have anonymity going for me with social oh, no. media <laughs> um you're too like exotic I- apparently no but I mean like my uh, I know that my personal Facebook I've had people where it's like hey you should add me as a friend and I should be easy to find because if you search my name I'm the only person that comes up but I guess Mm. I must have said it somewhere where I don't come up so if I have people who want to be friends I have to add them Um, Mm. so I'm glad that I turned the setting on go past Mm. me for protecting future me yeah Um, but but even with that, I tend to lurk, like I'll look at other people's things and I might post something every now and then. Uh, but I tend to go with the approach of like the people who I really would want to share this information with are probably just going to text me and ask. I do think uh, Michelle was talking earlier about how if if you're sort of like a millennial, if you're pretty young, by the time you reached an age where you kind of had a head on your shoulders, your privacy was already gone, right? Like I started using Facebook in what, like middle school? And yeah, yeah, I wasn't thinking about privacy. And, you know, once I was 17, 18, I was like, oh, huh, interesting. My face Mm. is out there and I can't really take it back. Um, Well, okay. So (laughs) it's pretty interesting because it's, it's not really a choice anymore for a lot of people. 
I do think that we're moving towards people who are more privacy conscious. That's why Instagram stories and Snapchat are working so well because the content disappears. And I don't know what you guys' opinion on whether that content really disappears is because it must be somewhere. But obviously (laughs) from the user's perspective and from the people making the apps, they know that to get people to use it, they don't want their content existing for years on end like we had. They certainly at one point a few years ago found out that the Snapchat stuff wasn't disappearing. Um, you know, it wasn't being deleted from servers where oh, yeah. people I mean, were... it's, it's their training data. Right? Yeah, exactly. The thing about the internet, though, is quite literally, once you put it on the internet, it's there forever. I mean, if somebody yeah. else has taken a screen cap mm-hmm. or... Yeah. I mean, it's... Look back machines. The, yeah, that's, yes. that's it. But I think part of the... One of the interesting things that I've seen about social media, and it may or may not be related, but it seems like because our generation has so much of themselves on social media, there are certain things that are just generally more acceptable. Mm. Um, like, you know, you see tattoos and piercings in the workplace and in some extremely professional workplaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, historically, this would have been something that's not allowed, but pretty much all millennials know somebody with a tattoo and piercings. And so the whole society has shifted. So in terms of um, social media data in the same way as facial recognition, you know, is it too late? Have we just given up everything? Oh, it's absolutely too late on social media data. There's no doubt about it. I was excited that you were going to say, no, it's not too late. It's it's maybe not too late for like some children. Yeah, that's true. For me personally, I'm like, education. eh. Mm. Mm -hmm. It does. It does. Like I'm always amazed at the amount of people that will share their child's birthday, where they were born. Like people put the weight of their child. I just think, why? Like First of all, no one really cares how much your child weighs when they're born. And secondly, like, you're just giving away all that data already and the child doesn't have that choice. Mm. I was going to say that and about loads of pictures horrifying. of children. Like you often yeah. see lots of like really unflattering pictures of kids. You know, like when a celebrity is on some late night show and they show some funny, embarrassing picture. I think there's so many kids now where there's like thousands of these hideous photos all over social media. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's a word for it, and I was shocked to find out. Like, I'm not shocked that there's a word, but I was shocked to learn it. It's called <laughs> it's called Sharon. No, and it's absolutely crazy. Like, there was this viral trend of like posting vi- videos of your child uh, while you read off their report card. That's ah. absolutely like that's something that oh. gives me anxiety, and I'm no longer even in school. That's, yeah. that's not good. No. That's well, really was, mean. I remember there was I don't know if it was it might have been a Twitter account it might have been before Instagram but there was it was something like my child why my child's crying and this dad was posting pictures of his kid didn't he was like my dad my child's crying because I wouldn't give him a Mars bar my child's crying because I wouldn't let him step on the step that he wanted to and you that's funny for an adult to see and you know for it's funny for people watching but equally it's sort of laughing at your child which is nice for your child yeah when they grow up and realize that you're doing when they want to be a professional or taken seriously or anything that they want to do in the future that annoying video of them is still there yeah well, and I think for me, especially, I mean, I, there are plenty of things that I did myself that I guess theoretically could have tarnished my image. And luckily, <laughs> yeah. luckily, I'm in an age group where we just kind of own that we did stupid stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that was me. I, I regret it. Which, whatever, as you like, said, is, is kind of a benefit of social media. It's normalized a lot of these things. Right. Yeah. But, stupid was, stuff. Well, yeah, but especially because of that, like, I mean, I don't have children, but when I do have children, I'm probably not going to post them on social media. Like I see plenty of celebrities and like mm-hmm. actors, authors whatever um one either they don't post any photos at all of their children or any photos of their children don't have their faces in them Mm. yeah um you know you might know the kid's name maybe the kid's age but that's as much as they share 
Yeah. And I think that's kind of the right way to go because it really gives the child control over their identity. And that's, th- that's hugely important given how easy identities compromise these days. I think also with celebrities, or certainly in the UK, if they share a photo of their child's face themselves, then the media is free to use pictures of the child's face and then they won't blur it out. Whereas if they haven't been shared before by the parents, then the media won't. Like oh, paparazzi really? pictures will be blurred out. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know if that's just a UK thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also I am so glad and I am slightly older probably, but I'm so glad that I didn't have social media when I was in school. Because the like, if you were bullied when you were in school, you could I could leave it at the gate, but now there's just no getting away from it, and that's horrifying too. Well, so I had some horrendously ugly teenage years that I'm just I'm just <laughs> so pleased we're not documented. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I always make sure to upload photos of myself that look good, but also look bad, because yeah. I don't want myself to feel bad about myself when I look bad. If that makes sense. I, yeah. I feel like if I only had good pictures of myself, I'd like want to put on makeup when I go out to the grocery store, which is a terrible idea. I do love a good filter instead of face smoothing. So I, I am a victim so, of that. So, yeah. Like I, I, I want bad photos of myself. So being a woman in tech isn't something we get to talk about together very often. So let's get to it. How do you both find it? Well, so it's pretty trash, but it's also pretty amazing, I would say. I mean, one important thing to keep in mind is that women in tech have it way, way better than women in a lot of other industries, right? There's high demand for employers to fill these positions. We're paid pretty well. If we're not treated well at one company, it's pretty easy for us to jump ship. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not the case for a lot of women working in worse jobs, you know, immigrant women, uh, women working in low paid service jobs like maids, even if the the gender proportion is 50% or even mostly women, uh, that doesn't mean at all that they're treated any better. Often they're treated worse. So that's a really good thing to keep in mind. That mm. being said, the culture in tech can be a bit toxic sometimes, and mm-hmm. there is not enough women. So I think it's a really great point in that, you know, any environment can be toxic. It doesn't matter how many men or women or what the balance is. Um, and there's always an element as a woman in tech to kind of be one of the guys. And it's not meant in a bad way. It's just kind of to make you fit in and everything to go smoothly um, around you and with your team and everyone you're dealing with. One of the things I've noticed, especially as a woman that's married to another woman, um, as soon as everyone around me, men, women, whatever, in tech, uh, realize this, there's immediately no stress. I'm not a threat to the men. I'm not a threat to the women. Uh, I'm just there to do my job. And it seems to put everyone at ease, which is a very strange thing. Mm, That's so interesting. Yeah. Uh, It definitely made me think when Michelle was talking about the importance of networking in tech, how that can be harder for a woman, right? So it's really important often to get a mentor. It's really important to network. That's the easiest way to get really good jobs. But that can be super hard for women because men might be worried that connecting with you uh, will be interpreted as as them hitting on you and they don't want that they don't want to do that. Or on the other hand, some men do want to hit on you and you have to avoid that by not networking with them. It, it makes it really, really tricky. And that's something that I, I agree. Like if I have mentioned that I have a partner and he's great, I've, I've noticed men relaxing around me in professional situations. And it makes me a bit sad because that indicates that they were before sort of not communicating with me and not binding with me as much as they would because Mm. of that barrier. Because you don't want to be thought of, well, I certainly don't want to be thought of as 
anything different from anybody else. Like, I don't, that doesn't need to be a second dimension to it. I just want to be seen right. as a person in the workplace. It doesn't yeah, matter whether I'm not, a woman or a man. It's not necessarily their fault. Yeah. Like often they are trying to be the good person by not, you know, talking to you. Uh, but it's good to admit like, Hey, this is a problem that affects a ton of women. Mm. Uh, and it ends up making it often harder to network and advance in the field because of because of that. Part of the importance of networking is that for as much as information security is a field that is extremely about what you know, it's still really about who you know, too, especially if you don't have the experience already. Um, you know, if you just constantly have closed doors, the easiest way to open them is to network. Yeah. In jobs, time and time again, they're like, refer your friends, uh, bring us your friends. Mm -hmm. They're, they're going to be like the best. It's way better than just like interviewing people who are random. But you know, Men are mostly friends with men. Women are mostly friends with women. There's absolutely ex ex exceptions, but that's often how it goes. And so when you have a ton of men in one field and very few women, it can be this self-fulfilling pro prophecy where yeah. uh, the culture is more men. People are mostly referring more men and it's, it's harder for a woman to get in the field. So we kind of just have to plug away and try to move it up to closer to 50% over the coming years. Mm. Well, and I think part of what would be great about having more women in the field is women, they come at situations differently than men. And there's almost nothing that you do in security where you don't have to deal with other people. Like even if you're like a hardcore engineer or an architect and you just build things, you're still going to have to deal with other people. And women provide a great balance, I think. And because there are fewer women in tech, we should attend these networking groups and maybe put ourselves forward as mentors because then we can help each other and we don't have to feel like we're going through this awkward thing. We can just be women helping other women to progress in the industry. Oh, for yeah, sure. And also take advantage of the fact that we can jump ship if you're in a bad company or you're in a bad situation, you have the power to say no a lot more than, than other women do. Mm. So it's good to keep that in mind. As for striving to have more women in tech, um, just the fact that you are a woman and you are working in tech and competent, you know, is hugely important to everyone, not just for like the work purposes, but for the image purpose. Mm. Yes. And one of the bonuses I would say about being a woman in tech, especially I guess in naked security, we're such a content heavy area of the company where we're making videos, we're making podcasts like this all the time. People do want to see females doing it. And it's been hard for us to find women to be on the on these podcasts and in the videos. And it's given us the opportunity to be doing them and be putting ourselves out there in a way that we maybe wouldn't have had before. Yeah. Mm. Equally, yeah. Twitter has a lot to answer for. We uh, There was one example of, um, so we, um, for for Christmas a couple of years ago, it might have been an ill-conceived idea, but uh, I just, we decided to do an advent calendar. And uh, I, I basically convinced a guy to dress up in various Christmas outfits oh. and give a security tip for each day. <laughs> so um, I made the videos and I edited them and I came up with the concept and he did. He dressed up in these funny outfits and did the, in the tips, and he was really good at it. Um, but we posted it on um, social media, and someone, a woman, commented, "Oh, typical Sophos using a beardy bloke in his thirties." And what they weren't <laughs> seeing was that the whole idea was conceived by a woman. It was filmed by a woman. Naked Security yeah. is edited oh. by a woman. But the, the, there's just so much. Oh. Alice and I, we've we've been filming. So I've been filming Duck, for example, and. And other men for years, we've been filming them, and and never have they received any kind of comments on social media about their appearance. And as soon as Alice and I got our mm. faces on camera, we were getting um, like or like comments about our looks, like 
a sexual comments about us and it's like really like swampy comments yeah. and and it's just horrifying it's you're just like but then it puts people off being puts women off being right. on camera like alice and i can laugh it off because oh, yeah. we don't really care but it's, then you really need help with the thick skin yeah yeah it exactly can be a big downer to like give a technical talk about really technical things and then the first thing that people talk to you about afterwards is like wow you did that and you're a mm-hmm. woman and i'm like <sighs> i know that you're trying to be nice and you're impressed but also wow that's that that sucks you know and they're they're coming from a good place and it's just rough I did a video last year on YouTube which was quite basic giving some really basic advice and one of the comments was wow she's way too good looking to be that intelligent or something and I was just like oh Jesus like Mm. it's not a compliment it's actually just annoying yeah yeah, it's and pretty it offensive be to your gender and good-looking people. Yeah, well, and I think that the pity about that is there are so many highly intelligent women in tech. I have I've had the benefit of you know my mother, my mother's best friend, a lot of our family friends work in tech and security especially. So I've always had like the strong female role model already working in the field. I've always known like what to do next if I don't know what to do next with my career. I have somebody I can talk to, and not mm. and they can relate to me because they're women. Mm. You know mm. they've they've faced the exact same hurdles. It's not like you know just a random person who wants to do the same thing I'm doing and is facing it. They're, so they're facing the same hurdles in the same position, mm. which is really why we need more women to be mentors in tech. Yeah. I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, it's, it's they, not an easy field to navigate. No. no. Yeah. Have they, do, do you know if it's improved since your mum was your age? Has that- It's improved massively. Um, and for my mother, it was less about the harassment. Like there, there was some of that too, because there always is in every industry. Mm. Um, but a lot of it just had to do with the mobility and being taken seriously. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's great news. It's improved loads. Oh, massively. I yeah, think. I love being a woman in tech. Like, I don't mm. want to be in any field than the one I'm in. Cool. Well, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast. Um, we, at the end of every episode, we ask where our, we can find our guests on social media. Do you have any, do you want to put out your Twitter or anything? My Twitter is uh, Hillary M. Sanders with two L's, like the presidents that could have been. And the book that I wrote part of is called Malware Data Science, uh, published by No Starch Press. Cool. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. And this is Michelle Franci. Uh, You can find me on LinkedIn. I just lurk on Twitter. I don't really post. Uh, So, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Cool. Thank you. And Alice? You can find me on Twitter at Ali Rouge. And I am at Anna Brading on Twitter. And we are, of course, at Naked Security. Uh, if you can tolerate Facebook, we're live on there every week. And you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and of course, nakedsecurity.softness.com. And not forgetting our weekly podcast where we talk about security, the security of the week. And until next time, stay, stay, stay secure. secure.